You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you heard the conversation that I had with my friend Sean Geisinger, who you probably have heard on this podcast before. We talk about the adaptive flea famine theory for anorexia. Well, today we are talking about fear and we're talking about overcoming fear and recovery and where that fear might actually be coming from. And it might not be coming from where we think it's coming from a lot of the time, or that's what many of us who go through recovery discover. Anyway, enough said. I'm just going to let you listen to this conversation. It's kind of long. I actually edited some bits out because we just went off on so many tangents, but I think it makes sense. <laughs> Here's Sean. Anorexia's been known since the Middle Ages, and there have been references even from Aristotle about someone who lived on air. Um, but only since the 60s have people attributed their fear of eating a normal amount to their uh, fear to a fear of getting fat. Only when the uh, ideal weights plummeted to the level of anorexic people, many times people um, just wanted to. Um, eat healthier, and that led to weight loss, or they had something else that led to weight loss. As we'll talk about, weight loss is what triggers the symptoms, the syndrome. But but the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used to uh, define uh, all psychiatric conditions, has attributed the fear of feeding to fear of getting fat. And that has misdirected a lot of therapeutic efforts. Because if if the reason you're not eating is that you're afraid of getting fat, then you have to work on body image and self-esteem and, um, and why you're not good enough just as you are. Right, which can take a long time, that's for sure. Right, and distracts people from, I mean, those are all important things to work on for individual people, but it distracts people from, it's not true. That's not why they're afraid, really. They're afraid because of these profound changes in the brain. And I have to say, it's not all of us that feel that we're scared of gaining weight. I actually knew, I felt like I I hated being underweight and I wanted to gain weight, but I was still fearful of the weight gain process, which... I guess is why somebody like me really resonates with this theory much better than somebody who did, does also have body image stuff and has been told, oh, this is all due to your body image things. Right, right. It was really clear to you. As you write in your book, you would walk into your uh, kitchen every day thinking, today I'm going to eat a normal meal, and you'd walk out with a salad because something took over. And... And we know now that what, uh, from some interesting work that comes out of um, a group in Colombia, is that what takes over is a powerful habitual response that's um, wired in the dorsal striatum. Um, The people in Colombia were surprised to find that when they asked their subjects who had volunteered for to be in this inpatient program to recover their weight, but when they allowed them to eat 
uh, to choose what they were going to have the next day for lunch, they would choose celery sticks and carrot sticks instead of uh, more energetic food. And, and the people were mystified, uh, the subjects, and the um, researchers were mystified. And when they looked, uh, did, had them do this when they were in a scanner, a brain scanner, they found out that the part of the brain that was really active was the dorsal striatum. And they, this fit with something that they have believed for a long time, this is Steinglass and Walsh, uh, that that anorexia, that these responses are a habit that got wired into the brain by being praised for getting fat. And, and this was actually picked up by the New York Times, this uh, article in, the, in Nature Neuroscience, with the headline, Anorexia Isn't Willpower, It's a Habit, which is a strange non-explanation because of course one immediately thinks of all the obese people who are praised like crazy when they lose weight and yet the weight comes back. People with obesity are not obese because they don't care or they weren't praised for weight gain. They're obese because our Weight is as heritable as our height, and they come from lineages where food was um, not available all year round, or there were periodic famines, and the only way to save food before granaries, which is a blink of an eye in human evolutionary time, I mean, it's not very long that we've had agriculture, only 10,000 years, and humans have been um, making a living as hunter-gatherers for, a, you know, at least 140,000 years. And so um, they have a number, probably hundreds of genes that are tweaked to store fat and to recover that weight if they lose it. And the thing that I think that, that is most misunderstood about people in larger bodies is that actually most of them are restricting heavily the whole time and hence that propensity to store fat is getting made stronger. Because yes. that's what their bodies are designed to do when their bodies think that food is short or, or there is food shortage and that that is a different genetic reaction. And because yes. I, th I think that that really trips people up all the time, just this assumption that somebody is in a larger body because all they do is eat the whole time. Right, right. That's exactly... Usually the opposite is the truth. Exactly, yes. In fact, the one thing that, um, or one of the things that's most predictive of weight gain is having been on a diet. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> okay. We can talk about that in another we time. We can talk about that another time. <laughs> Because there is, yeah, a lot of bigotry against fat people that's so undeserved. I believe that without the um, without the Venus of Willendorf's and the Jones of Arc, the people who could store fat to feed their baby through the winter, to nurse through the winter, and who could run for miles uh, looking for food for their tribe or better lands for their tribe, we wouldn't, we, uh, European and Asian 
people, certainly the Northern European and Northern Asian people, wouldn't be around. Absolutely. Because, of course, food shortage and famine would have been one of the biggest things that hum the human race had to contend with on a really frequent basis. Exactly. And so it's no wonder that these genetics in our current population are so prevalent. Yes, yes, they helped us to colonize or inhabit the northern latitudes. We should. <laughs> Absolutely, they are heroes. It's not easy carrying a bunch of extra weight or running for miles on a diet of an apple, but without these people, uh, their ancestors, we would probably, you and I wouldn't be here. Um, but back to the... Um, what the an, another explanation for the uh, dorsal uh, wiring in the dorsal striatum of this habit? Um, the dorsal striatum, it turns out, is also wires in habitual patterns in, that are innate. So it you can, it can be learned or it can be wired even before birth. Um, when you think about how on earth an an animal can like a like a colt can or a foal, I guess they, when they're first born they're called foals. Yeah, when they come out, they can do all these things that are habitual behaviors. They can um, struggle to stand. They can walk. They can seek the teat, and they can suck. They can. And, you know, that's, uh, those are all complex behaviors. And they want to do these behaviors. Well, those got wired during dreaming, during REM sleep. And some are wired, some things are wired also during um, other forms of sleep. But before an animal is born, it's spending most of its time in dreaming sleep. And by animal, I mean birds and mammals, um, the only two groups that dream, but dreaming is so important that it occupies most of their time before and after birth, after they're born, when they're, in, when they're tiny infants. Well, so what, one of the things we know is that um, not only do humans develop this fear of feeding when they starved, but that pigs and rats, animals that like humans, made their living as omnivorous, opportunistic, wandering foragers, also develop um, uh, food restriction and um, uh, anxious, uh, hyperactivity. Uh, Pigs, 6% um, of lean bred pigs, those that were bred to meet the consumer mark, uh, desire for low fat in pork, 6% of those will develop something called wasting pig syndrome. And this is where the piglets, they vie with each other for the teat. And if they get bullied and pushed aside, they're very hierarchical, um, and they'll bully each other and some of them get don't get as much and if they start to lose weight and they lose enough weight and they're already very thin because they're this lean bred to be lean then these guys will stop 
feeding. This is after they're weaned and they're, they're given food, access, ad-lib access to um, chow, pig chow, and they'll ignore their pig chow, but they'll eat straw, which is like celery sticks and carrot sticks, maybe, their minds, and they will pace, 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 pace their pen until they die. They, they will die of star self-starvation. Well, you have to think, we know that many, many animals um, do restrict feeding in order to migrate. And you have to wonder how that gets wired in. A client gave me some idea of how it gets wired in in humans and probably how it got wired in in these pigs uh, as well and any other species that has to restrict feeding to, um, uh, to, to accomplish something else, like, say, incubating eggs or migrating or defending a territory uh, during breeding. So these, um, so what she, she told me is that she, when she was developing anorexia, she had a recurring dream that she is playing with ice cream. And as the, um, she's thinking of eating it, it's a bowl of ice cream she's considering eating, and it's melting, and she's pushing, she's ambivalent. She wants the ice cream, she's hungry, and she's pushing the ice cream around, getting ready to take a bite, um, pushing it around in the bowl, and and she just keeps pushing it around and sort of starting to, as it melts, starting to hold the spoon and let it drip off the spoon. Yes, and as this is happening, it's an these are anxiety dreams. Her anxiety is growing and growing and growing until it's this horrible dread. And but she wants she's hungry, so she's in the dream. She finally lifts the spoon one last time, full of ice cream, turns it and lets the ice cream flow off the spoon, sets the spoon down with with a decision made, I will not eat this ice cream. And she the dread is replaced by the most wonderful, perfect peace. So this must be what's happening in the pig's brain, <laughs> in the rat's brain, and in the brains of people with anorexia. But because we humans make sense of, you know, someone says, why aren't you eating? What are you going to say? You're going to say something. You're not going to say, I, I have inexplicable dread of eating, although people say that. <laughs> but you'll say, well, you know, I don't like that food, or I don't, want to have fat or right you know. and it's because our logical brains have to make up a reason for it and i think that a lot of the instinct is coming from that you know the brainstem area the part of the brain that doesn't really think that does well it does think it just reacts though it reacts to data yes. and so then we just get these these urges these desires these instinctual feelings and then we're, we're trying to make sense of them ourselves a lot of the time yes yes yeah yeah and you come up with something your brain does that all the time. In fact, as you know, as I'm sure you know, most of what's going on in your brain and making decisions is non-conscious. And our conscious mind actually is sort of reserved for really important decisions like who you're going to marry or... <laughs> and, 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 the, and a lot of the rest of the brain is, is running things. Automated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the, uh, the, that 
tiny conscious part takes credit for all those decisions. Right. Because that's what consciousness does. In the, in, actually, in fact, probably the question of who you're going to marry is probably largely controlled by that tiny <laughs> unconscious part of your brain as well. <laughs> That's probably uh, yeah, your, I your, genes, that. your genes probably have a large amount of influence in that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think that it's helpful to interpret this um, data out of Colombia as Yes, indeed, this is powerful um, wiring, and that what you know what people are off suggesting now as treatment for the fear of getting fat is exposure response prevention, and and it's the same thing that you did with I'm going to run towards the fear. You know, you discovered that it wasn't that you don't like food. You wanted food very much, but that you would have the intention of eating. But once you figured out it was fear, then you were able to say, look, I know what fear, <laughs> what you do with fear. I'm a horse um, person. You get back on the horse. You run toward it. And that's exactly what the um, exposure response prevention is. You run toward it. You do it anyway. And that's what helps to rewire this that's the neural rewiring part mm -hmm. so the problem that we have though in the treatment field is that this is still not understood the neural rewiring aspect especially still isn't understood and so people go into treatment centers and they get fed a relatively safe diet and they, they may gain weight on that because their bodies are desperate to gain weight and so that that and their metabolisms are low but because they're not doing the neural rewiring nothing is changing in their brains and they're still scared of food and they come out and they lose weight straight away so I think that the problem that we have is that the eating disorder treatment really isn't keeping up with science I guess Yes, it sure is. On yeah. a large, large scale. And it seems that it's such a monster to change something once it's the way we do things. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is the battle. Yes. Yes, weirdly enough, uh, or, um, you know, my, my approach has been much more uh, appreciated in, in Europe uh, and in England than in the U.S. and I, I'm not sure, but I wonder if, if it's because once a treatment has gotten branded uh, with a, you know, with a person, with a personality, or you know, a founder, or with this this kind of treatment, there's there's a certain amount of, um, you know, economic incentive to stick with it. Whereas in Italy, where I've been working. Um, it's um, national health care. Yes, I was going to say, do you think national health care, where there's yeah. not actually that money incentive involved, has something yes. to do with it? Yeah, I do. They just want something that works. Yeah. Right. I, I think that also from my, um, as, as um, an English person <laughs> in America, um, therapy is a lot, I want to say, better marketed. Um, in America it's much more considered it, it's given a lot more respect in America I think than it is in the UK rightly or wrongly that's just an observation mm -hmm. um, and so I think that in, in the U, in the UK I feel that people are some people not all are a little bit more suspicious of therapy and whether it really 
works mm-hmm. or whether it's really worthwhile and and so maybe that's why it's not quite as got such a stronghold but that said treatment centers in the uk and in other parts of europe i know can still be very very fearful of allowing people to eat and treatment centers in the uk can be some of the worst for telling people that if they eat above their meal plan that they're binging and they're developing a binge eating disorder and that's the worst thing that they could do mm-hmm. so yeah yeah i don't know in, in italy at this at this treatment center they um are more enlightened i think about that i think that um in england there's a real problem with the fact that the gate you know the primary care provi- providers are gatekeepers and they i know they tend to minimize uh or just think oh someone's going to grow out of this and and they get some sort of reward for not sending too many people onto specialist care. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's because it's national health and specialist care is expensive. If if I could ever put one message into the world, what I want written on my gravestone is it's okay to binge in recovery from anorexia. And I I think that that's one of the one of the primary reasons I was successful in recovery is because I allowed myself to do that and the yes. reason I allowed myself to do that is because I'd never been into a treatment center and I'd never been told yes. that binging was bad yes. yes and it's just so biologically intelligent that after a period of n- insufficient food that mm-hmm. a mammal would intake large amounts of food to accommodate for that and so yeah. f- to me it's just insane that people are told you can't have more than your meal plan, that would be bad. Um, and I think it's one of the fundamental reasons that people don't recover. So um, so the bottom line or the take-home message, I guess, from about fear of fat is that it distracts. And, you know, if people are working on, I want to get over caring how I look, which is absolutely unnatural for us because we're a pair bonding species. And I'd love to talk about that with you sometime too. Um, It's normal, healthy, and essential that females, reproductive age females, care how they look and try to meet the standards of the society. Um, But but back to, sorry, just digressing again. Um, so to shame people because they care how they look is misogynistic. It's women blaming and wrong. Uh, and and to call it fear of getting fat when it's really fear of feeding something that's shared with all these other species when they have something more important they have to do distracts the therapist from what they need to be working on, which is helping people run towards the fear. You know, what your book does so beautifully is give people a way to say to themselves, I, yes, I feel the fear. It's nothing that I need to analyze. It's here. It's, it is wired into my brain. And the only way I'm going to change it is to run toward it is to eat even though um, my body is saying this is super dangerous. And it's just like fear of flying. 
you know, when, if you want to get somewhere on a plane and, and 40% of Americans are afraid of flying, most of them. Yeah, most of them fly anyway. Um, but some don't, and that's really crippling. And the way you get over fear of flying is you, you know, eventually you make yourself fly. Yeah. And the more you can do it, probably the quicker you get over that fear. Right. And, of course, there are all these wonderfully effective uh, treatment techniques um, where you calm yourself. Well, that's actually a crucial part of being able to overcome fear, though, is to being able to try and maintain as m yourself in your um, parasympathetic nervous system as much as possible yes. to be able to actually follow through with doing it. Because when you're in your sympathetic nervous system, most of us are pretty useless when it comes to actually, we just want to run away. <laughs> um, yes. And so I actually think that the, the mindfulness techniques are really just actually about controlling your nervous system, which is something everybody should learn to do and is crucial for this work. Yeah. 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 Yes, I agree. I just I think mindfulness techniques are often so kind of like looked down on a little bit like oh that's just for the woo woo people or that's just for uh -huh. the you know like the navel gazers. <laughs> and it's like actually this is this is very crucial mind control nervous system control skills. That yes. For yes, that anybody true. that wants to overcome fear if you talk to anybody who on a frequent basis, you know, does an extreme sport or even is a brain surgeon or does things on a daily basis that are, is terrifying, they have learned how to control their nervous system. Yes. And they've, they've used their breathing. They've, they've used all of these techniques. And so I think it's something yes. that should be really actually highlighted as a really cool skill. Yes. Oh, I agree completely. And if you're, if you know that it's in, a fear of feeding that is no longer functional, it's much easier, I think, to work on, okay, I'm going to, just like, it's exactly like uh, fear of flying, you know, statistically, you're safer to fly than to drive. And so, you can tell yourself that. And in this case, you, you know, you're not having to try to convince yourself that you don't care how you look, or you don't care about meeting society's weight standards. Uh, which is, as I say, confusing because we're supposed to care how we look and meeting society's standards. Um, so here it's, it's just cleaner, like fear of flying. You know, you know we're afraid of flying because we're afraid of heights because that was a word and that was a, a way to die when we were, uh, what, climbing all over uh, cliffs and so on. But it's not, a, we don't need to be afraid of heights in a plane. I was just looking and making note about a podcast about why we care how we look. Some of us, some more than others. Well, yeah, definitely. And, and some, it can be definitely a problem, but all, it gets turned on, you know, by ovarian hormones at puberty, a, a, hyper, a hyper concern about looks in females because we had to compete with other females for the best for our children because our children needed so much um, provisioning and support to make it to adulthood. But there's the perception that people who only develop anorexia when they're in their teens around puberty, and I think many do, just because, yeah, as you said, that desire to look a certain or look um, attractive kicks in, and then we have these societies telling us that attractive is thin, and so it's like a no-brainer for many people. Oh. I need to be thinner or go on a diet. So then, of course, if they have the genetics for 
um, anorexia and they go into energy deficit, that's when it happens. Exactly right. <laughs> that's how it goes. So I think there's also this perception that this is, it's due to some mystical psychological thing that happens to teenage girls around that time, rather than biology. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And some, you know, fatal flaw in females, they're so vain. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Rather than biology. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so to round it up, what did we learn today or what have we talked about today? We've talked about many things. It's more effective and more true to think of it as fear of feeding rather than fear of getting fat. And it's wired in to anorexic brains probably during um, dreaming. Um, and it, the way to treat it is to um, try to calm yourself while you get yourself to feed, eat over the fear, eat despite the fear. And I, think, I feel that some people really are for, for many of us, it's just weird. There's this fear of eating, fear of feeding. And then over the years, I think, I think that the fear or the strong fear of weight gain just develops over the years for many of us because our brains are learning. Like when, every time that we restrict food, every time we act as if f weight gain is, is problematic, we teach our brains that weight gain is problematic. And so I think that for many of us, over the years, our brains are conditioned to actually develop a strong fear of, of the actual weight gain part as well, yes. Um, yes. which would probably not have been such a factor if, if anorexia indeed as a migration response just lasted weeks to months and then was over and then there was a feast that ended it all. Right. But because right. we're going on for years and years and years, it's like these additional factors of this additional yes. wiring is being... Um, exactly. is, is being brought in that then becomes a huge problem to try and overcome um, because you know as I, I know that that for me is just the weirdest thing for me I, I, I hated being thin I didn't like being thin I knew I looked atrocious um, but I was still obsessed with my weight looking yes. at the scale and I, I can say I was scared of gaining weight despite the fact I wanted to gain weight so that can actually show that the brain the logical brain is sitting there saying you want mm -hmm. to gain weight, but there's this deep-rooted fear coming from somewhere that I felt was just right. inexplicable to me that I didn't like to admit to because I didn't like to admit that I didn't want right. was, that didn't, I was scared it, of gaining weight because yeah, wasn't consistent with who you'd been before. Right. I had a client who didn't even know what she weighed. She she was just this thin and active tomboy and hadn't cared about her looks or anything particularly. Um, but once she developed anorexia, she said she just could not bear to gain, she found she couldn't bear to gain a Same sort of thing, yeah. So it's just, um, I think that it's, it's so difficult for, it, it's difficult to place logical meaning on the things that our brains are trying to instinctively get us to do. It's like trying to explain why you fall in love with a certain person when that <laughs> might not be bleedingly obvious, you know, and I think that that, that we do run into difficulties sometimes when we try and put too much explanation over the top of these things and say, well, this is the way that it is. And also, I think we run into difficulties when we, when we say that these are psychological reasons because that implies some kind of um, intent. Or uh, What that implies is that something has happened within that person's lifetime to influence what's going on. 
And I think that when we look at biology, it's like that's that what's influencing what's going on is not actually to do with that what that person may have or may not have experienced within their lifetime. It's thousands of years worth of human evolution that is influencing what yes. that person is instinctually thinking or feeling at that time. Right. And the weight gain is a measure of how good of a anorexic you, you are. So there's, it's, anorexia is all about self-denial, self-control, um, and the scale numbers going down say you've been good, done it right. Yeah, you know, Catherine of Siena, if she ate, would put a twig down her throat to throw up because the measure of being good was not eating. And so she was, you know, not at all concerned about her body weight, a body size or anything. But, but yeah, I, I'm convinced if I'd been around in the Middle Ages, I would have absolutely attributed my um, desire to not eat to religious stuff, which is, I, I'm an atheist. But I can that's totally right. see myself doing that. I can yes. totally see myself being like, yeah, that's why I'm starving myself for God and getting all on that bandwagon and really yes. going for it and being a very good believer. Even yes. though I am actually an atheist, I, I'm pretty yeah. sure I would have done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it made sense in that culture. It, yeah. Yeah. And because what I did in this culture is I, I, you know, I made up that it was all about being healthy, quote unquote, and I'm just a health nut. And this is why I'm doing this when actually within my, my actual nature is I don't really care about any of that stuff at all. And mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite foods is cheeseburgers. So but that's what I took on at that time to excuse my behavior and to yeah. make to justify it I guess is a better word than an excuse and then as you say it gets wired in you know you go down that path a few times and pretty soon it's the well-worn path in your brain well to be fair that conversation did go on even longer but I decided that that was quite enough material for one podcast and I can always have Shine Geisinger back on the podcast, and I think I will, probably a number of times. We're very well aligned in um, looking at bio biology and evolution to explain why things like eating disorders like anorexia nervosa may have evolved within humans and what evolutionary advantage at some point that must have had. And um, I think that this is something that's not spoken about enough in terms of eating disorder treatment and theories. We've got to look at the biology of the human body and that all of these things that those of us with anorexia and other eating disorders have in common and we go through are not just this big coincidence. They're genetically wired. They're not quite as much within our control or even within our experience of our lifetime as we think they are a lot of the time, in my opinion, anyway. So if you have any questions for Shine Geisinger, then you can email them to me and I'll pass them along to her and maybe we'll do a podcast about them. Uh, my email address is info, that's I-N-F-O, at, at symbol, tabithafarrar.com. And you can get through to me on my website as well, which is tabithafarrar.com, which is likely where you found this podcast. So, until next time, cheers and cheerio.